Thank you, Lois. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. It is good to be back. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for who you are to us and your promises and your word for us. What you have done for us in the past makes us bold and makes us confident of the things you have promised to do for us in the future. And so, Lord, moment by moment, we are relying on your grace. And moment by moment, we are looking for you. And we want to be living for you. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would be here with your word, that you would give the increase, you would plant it in our hearts and cause it to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. It is good to be back. It is a joy to be back, united with with the church we love. And while I was gone, I had the opportunity to listen to Pastor Daniel's messages, which were, I thought, excellent. And last week, he he did a message on giving. And uh, there were so many questions in the ABF time afterwards that the elders at their meeting on Wednesday decided it would be a good thing for me to to do a second message answering some of those additional thoughts on giving. So this week, we'll be doing a, another message on abounding in the work of generosity. This is part two. Well, hopefully, we'll fix all of Daniel's errors. And <laughs> No, no, no. But I think it's such a big topic. By, the, by its nature being topical, um, there isn't one primary text we'll be looking at. Uh, there's only a few of these that I'll try to stop and say, can we all turn there? I'd, I'd encourage you, if you want to follow along, follow along with me. I've written the references down so you can check them up later if you just want to hear me read them. But we're really just going to try to answer four questions that, that as we were talking about with the elders, thought would be good to answer. As we thought about generosity, as we thought about stewardship and money, does God promise us health and wealth if we're faithful? And are we commanded to tithe? And, and are we under any obligation to give to anyone in particular at all? And how do we balance saving with giving? Those are the four questions we're going to try to answer this morning, I hope. And so let's dive in. Does God promise us health and wealth if we are faithful? Now this, sadly, is, is, is a big issue in the world. I don't think it's as big of an issue here in this church, but the prosperity gospel or the word faith movement is is huge. It's especially sadly huge because we're exporting it to poor countries. There are there are teachers out there, teachers like um, Joel Olstein, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, who teach that we're kingdom kids, and as kingdom kids, the, the sons of the king, they don't wear rags. God's desire for you, God's desire for me is that we would be healthy, that we would be financially prosperous, that we'd be rich. And the only thing holding back from that is our lack of faith, our, our lack of speaking words of faith. And that's very appealing. You could see why that would sell. You could see why that would be, ooh, I like that. And, and something Daniel said even last week, if you didn't pay close attention, might lead you to think that. Daniel made the, the point, I completely agree with, that if, if you give thinking that you're benefiting God, then God becomes owing to you. You've switched the roles. You become God. And you benefit him. No, we give, but we always give to receive. We always give to receive. In fact, didn't you say giving without desiring to receive is idolatry? If we have the audacity to think that God needs my help and 
God was in a bind there, but thankfully I stepped up and you can see how that type of thinking flips everything around. But Daniel was clear to say that the benefit we receive is more joy in him, more, more fullness of knowing him, not the benefit being financial prosperity and health. The short answer is there is no New Testament promise of health and wealth. There's no amount of faith that guarantees that we'll be rich. You only need to read Fox's Book of Martyrs or church history's accounts of what happened to the 12 apostles to, to see the foolishness of such thinking. And yet this type of thought pervades in, in, in the church. And in the Western church, and maybe something that we might be a little more susceptible is what I call the prosperity gospel light. And the prosperity gospel light doesn't say that if, if you're if you're faithful, you'll be rich and that you'll, you'll have unending health. But it does say that if you're faithful, you'll have an easy life. If you're faithful and if you're obedient, life will be easy. It'll be, it'll be smooth. There won't be too many bumps in the road. That's the prosperity gospel light. And I do think if we're careful, we can sort of fall into that. You can, you can tell if you've fallen into that when bad things happen. Do you start to feel like, God, I've been a good little boy. I've been a good little girl. What, what's going on? If you've ever caught yourself thinking that, that somehow your faithfulness is, is owing God to, to make life smooth, make life easy, then, then you may have bought into the prosperity gospel light. And so point one here, in, in contrast to the prosperity gospel and in contrast to the prosperity gospel light, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in, in unashamed terms, we are promised temporal suffering and persecution. We are promised temporal suffering and persecution with joy, peace, and comfort. When we were in 2 Timothy, we read 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's, there's a promise. You, you can name it and claim it. You desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. This is a word of faith. Or 2 Peter 2, 20-21, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called to suffering for doing good, to be clear, to be beaten for no cause. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We've been called to suffering for good. We've been called to persecution. And if God doesn't measure out sufferings and persecutions uniformly in his church, and if, in our experience in the West, things are a little easier than other places, that doesn't give us the right to presume, that doesn't give us the right to expect that you'll continue to do so. Um, in the world right now, in, I, in Iraq, for instance, the prosperity gospel is not working. We can pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq. See, what the Christian picture paints isn't simply one of all suffering and sorrow. There are, there are verses of joy and verses of comfort, which is why I worded this. We are promised suffering and persecution with joy and peace and comfort. If you would turn to 2 Corinthians 4, what a friend of mine calls the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, we, we will see how Paul stacks them. 
And one of the things you've got to pay attention to when you're listening to teachers, when you're reading books, is that people emphasize the whole truth. In the last two, was it last week, Daniel, the week before, you said a half-truth presented as a whole truth is a complete untruth. I, I swear, see, I'm listening to the sermons online. Well, whoever said that, I think it was Daniel, it's true. A half-truth represented as a whole truth is a complete untruth. And it's really easy to represent half-truths. And we want to represent both. And here in, in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul lays it out, in, starting in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that surpassing power belongs to God and not us, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since then, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, to the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, it would be easy enough to mine this passage and just grab the positive half of the contrast. Brother, we're being renewed day by day. We're going to inherit the world. This is working together for, for glory. And just leave out the sufferings and the crushings and the pain. And this is, this is more of a balanced picture. The, the promise of the gospel and of Christ being with us is not that life will be smooth and easy. It's not that we will have our best life now. Our best life is, is, is in heaven. If, you're, if you have your best life now, you're going to hell. I understand that. This is as good as it gets for you. No, no. We're looking to things that are unseen. And in and along and with the suffering, there is comfort. And in and along and with the suffering, there is, there is joy and there is renewal and there is encouragement. And it's so easy in our presenting the gospel to simply present the positive sides. Like, I, like I've said before in other messages, we rarely call people to the gospel to a life of suffering, to a life of persecution. Um... <laughs> Jesus had no problem saying, hey, if you're not willing to pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, go home. You can't be my disciple. Jesus didn't try the bait and switch. And, and because for a while we sort of emphasize the positive sides, we can get off center. God does not promise us health or wealth if we are faithful. He doesn't. Moreover, and this is what makes the, the prosperity gospel so wicked, is the Bible in no uncertain terms emphatically states the desire for riches is deadly. The desire for riches is deadly. You remember this when we were going through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. 
Paul writes this, that some imagine that godliness is a means for gain. Some imagine, he's, he's aghast, that some would think they can make money off the gospel. And he says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we could take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. And then listen to this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You don't get any clearer than that. Notice Paul does not say having lots of money is evil, but wanting lots of money is deadly. Wanting lots of money. So you can be poor and be guilty of this, and you can be rich and be guilty of this. The desire for lots of money is deadly. And so how atrocious is it that people get up and presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, appeal, encourage people to covet, to want the very things that Paul says will ruin their soul. And they go to poor countries in South America and in Africa, and they tell poor, starving people that if they accept Jesus into their heart, they too can become rich, they too can become wealthy. And they fleece the flock of God. The desire for riches is deadly. You think of the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The desire and the love of wealth and money is deadly. Notice the bar that, that Paul puts that. If we have food, if we have clothing, we'll be content. Anything beyond that is gravy. Anything beyond that we have no guarantee of, we have no right for food and clothing. This brings us to the third point. Contentment is a product of faith and not circumstances. Contentment is, is a spiritual fruit Contentment is not the product of circumstances, it's the product of faith. And we tell ourselves, we assuage our consciences that the reason why we're discontent, the reason why we covet, the reason why we grumble is because if only we had, and then fill in the blank, the raise, if only we had the car, the single person, if only I had the husband or wife. And we tell ourselves it's our circumstances that are the cause of our discontentment. It's not true. I want you to listen carefully to, to the writer of Hebrews' description of the Hebrews, of the Israelites' sin in the wilderness. Hebrews 3, 16 to 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So he's talking about the history of Israel in the wilderness, not able to enter the promised land. What was the dominant besetting sin of Israel in the wilderness? They grumbled. They complained. They were discontent. Was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt, Moses, that you let us out here to die? And then we're tired of this magic food that shows up every morning. We want quail. And again and again and again, they grumbled and complained. And the writer of Hebrews says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They're grumbling, they're complaining, and consequently our grumbling and our complaining is unbelief. We, we kid ourselves when we think that our discontentment, our coveting, is because of our circumstances. We kid ourselves into thinking that. The Apostle Paul says contentment as a spiritual gift is something that must be learned. We, we know the passage in Philippians 4. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every and in any circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We quote that verse out of context a lot. You know, the kids could score the goal. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When more accurately, can he rejoice if he misses the goal? That, that, I, 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 can, I can be content with whatever I get. I can be content with what the Lord apportions to me. I can rejoice and be satisfied with much and with little. Contentment is really the spiritual fruit we should be after. We need to be wary, wary of believing that somehow in this life, God has promised God owes us ease, peace, prosperity. Now, there's a life to come in which we will reign with Christ. There's a life to come in which we'll be rich. We'll judge angels. We'll rule with him. But in this life, we are promised suffering and persecution. So does God promise us health and wealth if we're faithful? No. Not here and now, he doesn't. Point number two. Are we commanded to tithe? Are we commanded to tithe? This is a pretty common question. Tithing was the law of the old covenant by which the Israelites had to give a tenth of all of their produce to the Levites. And so the question, and many people today think tithing is something we should be doing. The short answer, the blank next to number two is this, no. No, we are not commanded to tithe. There's a number of reasons. First, we're not national Israel. Second, the, the tithe is in many respects a national tax. It paid for the temple system, the synagogues. But most importantly, um, turn to Romans 7. Let's all turn to Romans 7. We're going to look at a couple passages in Romans. Most importantly, we are freed from the law of Moses. We are freed from the law of Moses. Now, we're not freed from all law. We're under the law of Christ and his commandments, but the Sinai covenant we have been freed from. Romans 7. Let's look at the first six verses. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But 
If her husband dies, she is freed from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is emphatic on this point both here and in Galatians. We died to the law, and we are united to Christ and we're under his rule. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 9 as being under the law of Christ. It's not that we're free and lawless, but we are freed from the law of Moses. Um, which puts us then in, in sort of a, a scary predicament because let's be honest, we like rules. We like structure. We like being told what to do. We, we like not having to think. There's a simplicity to tithing. You take out your calculator, you do type, you know, 10% in and you punch and there it is. And what we get in the new covenant is freedom. And freedom can be scary. We are free, second point, to act in love and faith. We're free to act in love and faith. Flip over to Romans 13. You see, what we're required of now is not an external code of laws and rules, but rather the Lord God requires that whatever we do, we do in love and we do in faith. And against this, there is no law. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If you're, if you're acting in biblical love, and I don't mean like feeling love, it felt lovey to me, but biblically informed love you fulfilling the law. Next chapter, 14, verse 23. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So in the freedom of the new covenant, what the Lord requires us to do is act in biblically informed love and act in biblically informed faith. And against that, there is no law. We're free. That's why James can call it the law of liberty. Let me give you an illustration of what that means. I want you to imagine the elders are out for a stroll. They're just sort of jaunting down the sidewalk. And, and Jeb Brewer stumbles upon a $50 bill at his feet. And he picks it up. There's no one around who apparently dropped it. This is manna from heaven. And we begin a lively discussion of what Jeb should do with the $50. And Jeff Sermon speaks up first. And he says, we should, we should give that to Jai Pandy. I think that would be a great thing to do with it. And, and Greg Sweet, he steps in, he says, but we've got the, the roof that we're setting aside, the fund for the roof, where the roof's going to go, I think, I think it'd be useful there. Um, and we go around, and, and Jason says, no, really what you should do with it is you should take your wife out to dinner. That'd be a good thing to do with it. Um, <laughs> you're welcome, Jason. And, and around we go, and, and, I, and I voice up, and I say, no, no, why don't we... Why don't we, we need some more baby pagers. I've seen that in the bulletin. We could, buy, we could probably buy a baby pager for 50 bucks. And, and somebody else says, no, you should, you, should, you, should, you, know, you should save that for the wedding that's coming up because I hear that weddings aren't cheap. Um, and, and so it goes. Now, here's my question. Who's right? Who's right? 
There is no right answer. Jeb's free. Jeb is free to choose any one of those options or any other option he comes up with as long as he can do it in faith and in love. And I think anything that I just listed can be done biblically in faith, can be done biblically as an act of love. Can he, can he put it towards the roof in love and in faith? Sure he can. Can he take his wife out to dinner in love and in faith? Sure he can. Can we buy a new baby pager in love and in faith? Sure we can. See, there's no law. And that type of freedom can be frightening. But there's no law. Act in love. Act in faith. This is why some people are going to get passionate about some ministries and some people get passionate about other ministries. And, and that's wonderful. The danger is when the ministry you're passionate about, you become the champion for and you try to guilt everyone else into. Well, it's wonderful. When people come and talk to me, they're passionate about some ministry. They say, brother, sister, that's wonderful that God's put that on your heart. Well, the church should start supporting this. The church should get into this. Well, we'll pray about it, but, but I don't know if we will. It's great that God's put that on your heart. I can rejoice in that. Because God's going to work us and his will out as we act in faith and in love. Now, this does bring up a flip side, though, that can be kind of concerning. Because of that freedom, it will reveal, and how we spend our money reveals what we treasure. It reveals what we treasure. Jesus is clear above that in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in one sense, if we just had a rule, 10% or whatever, it'd be really simple. I'd give God his peace and I could do what I want. Now the Lord says, no, 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 act in faith, act in love. And yet what we do, especially over time and how we spend our money, it will reveal what we treasure, it will reveal what we love, it will reveal whether we are atheists in practice, materialists in practice, hedonists in practice, or whether we believe the things we sing and whether we believe the things we read. So that can be kind of frightening. We need wisdom. You know, we should be praying about how we spend our money. We should be praying about our giving. There is no simple answer. And the good news is James tells us if we lack wisdom, he will give it to us. He will give it to us. But how we spend reveals what we treasure. Okay, then if, if that's true, if what I've just said is true, perhaps, and you think, then I guess we're not under any obligation to give anyone anything. Is that what you're saying, Pastor Jeremy? Are you saying we can just do whatever we want with our money as long as it's in faith and love? Well, there are a few exceptions. There are a few exceptions. So point three, are we under any obligation to give to anyone? And I can think of at least three things that are exceptions. There's a fourth. I didn't make a point, but Jesus says, given to Caesar what is Caesar, we, we give our taxes. I just don't think anyone views that as a, as a giving, an offering. Um, we tend to view it as an exaction, but... Uh, but aside from, from taxes, I can think of at least three situations that there is an oughtedness, there is an obligation. The first is our local church, our local church. Um, you, you, may, you, may some, you may wonder, why give to local church at all? Why not just go out and I'm going to be generous and I'm going to give and I'm going to find 15 ministries and I'm going to give to them. Why do I need to give to the local church? Well, Christ has set up his church in such a way that, that we who come together and share together, we partner together, and in part, that's done through giving. Galatians 6.6 6 sets up a two-way street of reciprocity. Listen to Galatians 6.6. 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 
Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So there's a sense in which those who labor among you, myself, Daniel, others who labor among you, there's a sense in which it's right for the church to, free, to enable us to be free. up. What I view my salary as is the church freeing me up from having to work um, and build tents with my hands to do ministry. And, and so it's a freeing up and an unleashing, an untying of the um, ox, which Mike Doty always refers to me as. Um, <laughs> I wonder whether that's a compliment or not. I don't know. And, and it's a freeing up, but it's a biblical concept. And moreover, this, this offering week by week, where do we get that idea from? We get it from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do on the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so, the, so that there will be collecting when I come. Now here's for a specific collection, but this pattern of week by week setting aside as week by week we are prospered is a biblical pattern that we receive. And 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That word, Greek word time, for honor could also mean pay. And given the, the proverb he quotes next, it's likely what it means, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So if, if, you, if you come to this church and if you're blessed by the ministry of this church and if you're taught and instructed by this church and if you're encouraged by the people of this church, it is right, it is good for you to share all good things the Lord has prospered with you, with the church. And this is not just money, but also gifts and service. You know, some of us, the Lord may have prospered financially. Others of us have other gifts, other ways of serving. And this is something that I rejoice in seeing as people come and just do work at the church and they take up projects at the church. That's good. That's right. We're a family. We're knit together. If the Lord has given you a spiritual gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 7, by one spirit, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. The Lord has given you a spiritual gift. It's for the good of the body. And so it's good and right to serve in the body. And so by all means, give additionally to, to other ministries. But it, it is biblical. It is right. It isn't just something we made up that we take collections and we support the ministries of this church and we support those who are laboring among us. So that's the first category. Second category, urgent family needs. Urgent family needs. And the reason why I put urgent in there is this. Living in America, it's it's very hard to understand what the Bible means by the poor, the needy. We've already seen Paul speak about food and shelter. And living in a first world country, in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, uh, our understanding of, of poor just might mean no internet. No, no flat screen TV. They still have the rounded TV, right? Um, and so I put urgent family needs because we're talking now not about things that you should do, things that are, you know, that'd be a good idea, but no, things that are obligated, things that you're not free to say, no, I don't feel led to do that. Urgent family needs. In Mark 7, verses 9 to 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for coming up with a clever way to get around meeting urgent family needs. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God 
in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever would have been gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother and father, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. You see, Jesus understands the commandment to honor your mother and father is a lifelong commandment. It may change shape as you live. As you're a child in the home, honoring your mother and father means obeying them. As a married man, I don't know if you're called to absolute obedience. You're still called to honor, and part of that is to care for them in their old age. The Pharisees came up with a clever way. No, no, this is a ministry house, Mom. This is a ministry house, so you can't come and stay here. This is ministry money, so you can't. We, we, we know, we know you're, you're, you're hungry and you're, you're not clothed, but sorry. We promised it to the Lord. Corbin, oops. And so Jesus makes it clear, no, no, we have an obligation to take care of our family. Paul says something very similar in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8, speaking of widows. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Jump down to verse 7. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith. It's worse than an unbeliever. So in general, we're free to be generous and do what we want with our money. But specifically, we do have an obligation with those who are laboring with us in our local church, and we do have an obligation for our families, urgent needs. This doesn't mean you have an obligation to make sure that all of your nephews go to college. If the Lord puts that on your heart, that's great. Remember, we're getting back to what the Bible calls urgent need, which is food, shelter, things at that level. This doesn't mean you're obligated to make sure everyone has a smartphone. Um, but it does mean where there are urgent and real legitimate needs in your family, you are obligated, we are obligated to do what we can with what the Lord has given us. Finally, urgent church family needs. Urgent church family needs. James writes this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I'm praying for you. I'll be praying for you. And I could help you. And, I, and the assumption here is, of course, you have something you could give. You don't. The Lord's not leading me that way. No, if, if there's real urgent needs, the, the technical term for this is exigency. You're, you're aware of the fact that in, in the event of a house being on fire, a police officer doesn't need a warrant to get inside. If someone's screaming bloody murder, a police officer does not need a warrant to get inside a building. If there's extreme or exigent circumstances, that trumps normal protocol. And so what I said in point two about the freedom we have in general is trumped when in front of our faces in our family or in our church family, there is urgent and extreme need. And James makes it clear in those situations, we dare not say, well... I'm not led in that way. The Lord bless you. I'm praying for you. 1 John says it this way. 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
So we're not talking about the worldwide church. We're talking about the people you can see, the people you can touch, the people in our body. We've made a commitment to each other as part of the body that we're to love each other, we're to care for each other. And so if there's real, legitimate, and urgent need, we are obligated to step in and do what we can. Other than that, freedom reigns. But where there is urgent family and church family needs, there is obligation. And finally, the last question How then are we to balance savings with giving? How are we to balance savings with giving? And last week, Daniel said, I'm sure some challenging things. Um, There's some challenging passages, especially in 2 Corinthians 8, and we will look at that. So how then, given how Paul commends, when you remember Paul speaking of of the Macedonians giving and how they they gave out of their poverty and they, they they were asking to give more, which only makes sense if Paul's telling them to stop. Paul says that was a wonderful thing. Well, it, it, we want to balance the whole picture out because remember half a truth, whole truth. How, how does giving fit into that? We want to start by saying that saving money is wise. Saving money is wise. Proverbs 6, 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food at the harvest. You know, winter's coming, so you plant, you harvest, and you, you save, you set aside. Proverbs 21.20, 20. precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And in Luke 14.28, Jesus, just, just, just assuming this is what we would all do, says, for which of you desiring to build the tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Now, we just recently did that at our most recent congregational meeting. We realized that we're not building a tower, but we've got to fix the roof of our church building, we recognized that would be a costly expenditure, and so we began setting aside, portioning off money for that. We did exactly that. We saved, we planned, and we thought it was wise, and, and you did too, because it was voted and approved, and, and so we've done that. So savings is wise. The, the Bible has good things to say about savings. But what's also interesting is the Bible also makes it clear that saving money is wise, but point B, saving money is dangerous. Saving money can be dangerous. Turn to, turn to Luke 12. It's wise, but it can be dangerous. And that's what we're trying to figure out in our few final minutes is how to, how to piece this together. Luke 12 is challenging. I, I suspect that when we finish reading this passage, we will all be challenged by what Jesus says generally to his disciples. This isn't some subset. This isn't a specific location. This is Jesus' general teaching to his followers. And and we we read here about a savings that was very dangerous for a man. Luke 12, starting at 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, "Um, Man... Who am I to judge or arbitrate over you? And he said, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, 
be merry. The God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or your body, what you will put on. Your life is more than food, your body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, and the treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you read that, and you go, whoa. Is Jesus saying we should just dump our savings, sell everything, give to the poor? Well, it's we got to try to balance this off because you read this. What's clear is this. Savings can be a temptation. The temptation of savings is we put our trust in them. What the, what the rich man here is rebuked for is he is no longer living dependently on God. He's no longer praying, give us this day our daily bread. He says, I've got the next five years daily bread set aside in the bank. I'm good. I can relax now. Ah, to feel secure not be anxious. And God comes and says, you're dead. And all that savings isn't useless. So, so, so saving can be dangerous because it can tempt us to become reliant in our monies. I mean, what do, what do we call after all those monies we set aside? They're called securities, aren't they? Right? They're called securities. There's nothing wrong with saving but it can be dangerous because it can shift our trust off of the living God and onto what we have and our investments. And you see that because when the market crashes and people's hopes are lost, they were trusting in their savings. They were trusting in their possessions. There's another danger in savings. I think there's two. One, it can cause us to trust in what we have and what we can see. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just be wary, be careful. Our hearts are, are deceitful. But 2 Corinthians 8, let's, let's close where Daniel began last week. 2 Corinthians 8. I think the other danger is this. There, there's nothing wrong with saving, but I think we can buy into a notion of prudence and fiscal responsibility that can cause us to close our, if we're not careful, close us to, to cause, close our hearts from, from giving to people who are in need under the name of prudence. So all things being equal, I'd encourage you, save. Don't waste your money. And if you know that your car needs to be repaired in a few months, save. Yet be wary, be careful of the danger of being so wrapped up in the wisdom of that that, that you have no category for what we read about in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Because Paul speaks about it in positive terms. 
I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Poor people. The Apostle Paul's on a fundraising trip here to raise money for the church in Jerusalem that's facing famine and persecution. And the Macedonians, who are poor, are just overflowing and giving, and they're begging permission to give. Now, if you're a fundraiser, you don't normally, people aren't asking permission to give. This only makes sense to me if Paul, looking at their poverty, said, stop, you've given enough, no more. No. And they're saying, no, no, just let us give a little more. Come on, Paul, please. That's the only way I can make sense of this. And I'm just wary, I'm just wary of any wisdom that would call this foolish. Because Paul calls it the grace of God. Paul calls it the grace of God, right there in verse 1. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given. God gave a grace to the Macedonian churches. So that they overflowed in poverty and they overflowed in joy and that overflowed in money being given. And so savings are good. My only concern is, is just that we, we so buy into the savings that when we see need, we have no category for this type of giving. I, I know a friend of mine who was rebuked by people in his church because he dipped into his 401k to help somebody in the church. Well, that's foolish. That's unwise. I think it's the grace of God. If God puts it on your heart, I'm not trying to compel people to do that. Don't let anyone tell you it's, it's, it's imprudent. It's the grace of God. Which is the final point. Saving money exclusively for my future need is wrong. There's nothing wrong with saving money, but saving money exclusively for my future needs is wrong. I want you to read a little further in, in, in 2 Corinthians 8. Verses 13 through 15. He's still talking about this fundraising. He's coming back to Corinth. I do not mean, he says, that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. So if, if the Lord has put you in a situation where you have more than you need for food and clothing... And, and, and the relative things you need to continue to make that, like the car to get to work, if you have what you need to survive, what should we think of, what should we make of the abundance beyond that? And certainly, setting that aside for future needs is great. My only concern is we are tempted to set aside for my, and only my, future needs. Paul here says, your abundance now may very well be for someone else's need. And so we save and we prepare and we know what's coming down the road, but I, I hope we do it with an open hand so that, oh, I guess this money that I thought I was saving for new cars really for the Joneses' surgery. Praise God, who knew? And, and, and we have open hands. We don't tightly hold on. We don't look at the, the widow giving the might and say, imprudent, poor stewardship, unwise. Saving money is great. 
for needs. It's God's money, saving it. We don't see a need right now for it. We're going to save it. We're going to invest it. That's wise. Knowing what needs you have in your family, planning for that, that's wise. But, but here's, here's the test, and this is, this is the point I'm trying to make. I think we all know that our retirement savings, our money we've set aside for that vacation, if we were in urgent need, we would dip into. There's no one here who would forego a, 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 a surgery that would save their life because they didn't want to dip into you know, their, their vacation fund. And the only question I have is if we do that for ourselves, then should we not also consider doing it for others? If we're to love our neighbors ourselves if we're going to esteem each other as more important than ourselves. So saving's great, but just be careful it doesn't become some sanctified Corbin where I'd love to help, but I can't because I've portioned this off into an untouchable category that's for me later. That's all. Saving money exclusively for my future needs is wrong. So this is tough. It takes wisdom. It takes... It takes um, the Lord's guidance, we're free. We're free to act in faith and in love. We're not under the law of tithing. We, we recognize our obligations of the local church, urgent family needs, urgent church needs. And, and with the Lord prospers us and gives us success, it's, it's great to save and it's great to give to needs in front of you. Praying for wisdom that the Lord will give you the wisdom to know what to do there. And ultimately, we, we live as people who are not looking for our reward in this life. We, we live as people who understand and expect suffering and persecution will come, but we are promised a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are promised a city whose architect and founder is God. And with eyes looking to the things that are not seen, because the things that are seen are fuzzy and temporal, we act by faith. Let's pray, and I'll call the worship team up for our final song. Lord God, we just thank you for being who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you that you supply our needs. You give us the breath each day, cause our hearts to beat. We, we serve, stand and exist in your grace. And Lord, help us to, to act by faith and not to cling to the goods of this world as though they were our security. You are our security. You are our inheritance, and you are the source of all good things. Lord God, give us wisdom to glorify you with our money. In Jesus' name, amen.